Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger. And you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of these, the least of my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil, And his angels, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer him saying, Lord... When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it not, did not do it to one of the least of these, you did it not to me, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The Lord Jesus ends his sermon on the last days according to the king with a chilling parable, maybe more likely a metaphor of the destiny of two groups of people that he calls, number one, sheep, And number two, goats. Jesus insists that there will be a judgment for the nations as well as for people. And I can't even begin to tell you how the popular culture rejects that notion more than you can imagine. There is something inside of the hearts of individuals and people who are reluctant to believe that God really will hold people accountable for who they are and what they've done. We discover in this 
the end of the sermon that Jesus not only insists that there will be a judgment for nations and people, but somehow this judgment is linked to how we treat people. In the parable of the ten virgins, we were exposed to saving faith. In the parable of the talents, we're exposed to serving faith. And now we are given a glimpse, if you will, into what I call a metaphor, if you will, for sacrificial faith. And again, we're invited to ask a question. What do you believe about judgment? What is your deeply held conviction? What do you really believe? In John's gospel, chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus said that when the comforter comes, the Holy Spirit, he would convict the world of sin and of righteousness and also of judgment. In Romans 12, 9, in the New Living Translation, it says, Dear friends, never avenge yourselves. Leave that to God, for it is written, I will take vengeance. I will repay those who deserve it, says the Lord. The King James Version is much more, it says, much more expressive. It says, give place to wrath or make room in your thinking for Real judgment. When, when, the old, when in the book of Romans, Paul writes that, he says, give place for wrath. It's an idiomatic way of saying, make sure that there's something inside of your heart that makes a provision for the reality that God is in control, that everything wrong, he will make right. Every judgment, every slight, every thing that you thought somebody was getting away with or what you thought you were getting away with will be reconciled. There's real judgment. The Bible teaches that sin brings judgment every time without exception and that this judgment will be satisfied in one of two places, at a cross or on a throne. I can't make this any more clear than that. Every single sin will be accounted for on the cross of Calvary or on the throne of Jesus. All sin is known by God and will be judged by God. In Numbers 32, 23, we read, Be sure your sin will find you out. In Psalm 90, verse 8, we read, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. What we think secretly, what we say privately is seen in the light of God's glorious face. All sin is seen by God and known by God. But we live in a culture and a society where some people don't believe that, not even one bit. Some people believe that their sin isn't real. Some people go so far as to think that sin is an illusion. Others think it is an invention of societies to keep people's behavior in check. But the Bible says a very different thing. The Bible says, for all have sinned 
and have fallen short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23. Some people think that wicked thoughts go unpunished. Not so. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with them for the reward of his hands shall be given him. The prophet Isaiah said in chapter 3 verse 11. Judgment for sin like the coming of Christ is certain. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1 verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's his way of saying you can bury the truth, you can deny the truth, you can suppress the truth, you can throw a blanket over the truth, you can attempt to bury it in an avalanche of rationalizations or evil deeds, you can attempt to blot it out in a sea of philosophical justifications, you can attempt to make it go away by simply refusing to believe it or, or by insisting on denying it or making sure that you redefine it. But sin will eventually kill its host. It will eventually punish the host forever. The Bible's solution, you need a savior. You need a savior. A savior. We, we sing a song, everyone needs a savior. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2 verse 9, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. Of the Jew first and also of the Greek. All sins, it says, will be punished. Even your sin. But it will be punished. On Calvary's cross, or it'll be punished at a future date when your life is evaluated before the King of Heaven. Believers who trust Jesus have the penalty for sin nailed to the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus sufficient for all sin. Our destiny is determined by what we do with Jesus. The wise receive Jesus as Savior. They won't bear the punishment for or the penalty for sin. The people who refuse Christ, Think about it for just a moment. The person who refuses to embrace the, the free provision that's given, the merciful provision that's given in the person of Jesus must of necessity have their sins evaluated on some other basis. They are obliged to tell God that they will actually be responsible and accountable themselves for everything that they've said and done apart from Christ. When Adam sinned, it only took one sin. It only took one sin to curse all of humanity. It brought devastation on the entire creation. Adam's sin took place in the context of a perfect world. And if his sin was judged, 
What chance do you have that your sin will not be judged? When Jesus comes, the Bible says he's going to judge the nations. And the judgment seems to take place immediately after this period that's been called the time of the great tribulation or the time of Jacob's sorrow. In Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, we've repeatedly said, And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain will move to the north. Half of it will move toward the south, it says. His coming, the coming of Jesus on the Mount of Olives will split the mount and create a valley. <laughs> Joel calls this valley the valley of decision in chapter 3, verse 14. In one commentary, I read that the Hilton in a chain was denied a permit to build on the house of all or on the Mount of Olives because, quote, seismological studies indicate a major fault runs right through it. And so we begin. Here comes the judge. We have to ask the question, who is the judge and when is the judgment? Look at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from Another, when Jesus comes, according to the text, he will judge the nations. And it would appear that the judgment takes place immediately, like I said, after this time of the great tribulation. And of course, Jesus is that son of man. Remember, we've repeatedly says that he uses this phrase to describe himself. And for the first time, and this is incredible, for the first time, he reveals himself as a king. He reveals himself the rightful occupant of a throne. Later in front of Pontius Pilate, he will be asked the question, are you a king? And he'll say, yes, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. In Matthew's gospel, beginning in the first chapter, in the second chapter, in the third chapter, in the fourth chapter, in the fifth chapter, Matthew anticipates this statement by reminding the reader that Jesus is the rightful Jewish king. Jesus is the king, but he's also the judge. It says in John chapter 5, verse 22, not even the father judges anyone. But he has given all judgment to the Son in order that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. Jesus affirms that all judgment has been entrusted to him. For each and every person who says, I will stand before God and give an account of my life. You're exactly right. Jesus is that person. Why does Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man? Again, the title speaks of humility. It speaks of his identity as a real human being. It speaks of meekness and gentle love for fallen humanity. And this is interesting because no one more than fallen humanity hates the idea of being held accountable 
of being held responsible for their own circumstances. I think many don't because they know that they're guilty. Jesus comes the first time as Savior, but he comes the second time as the judge. And when is the judgment? It's found at the end of verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them one from another. As a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, it would appear that this judgment takes place when the sun comes in his glory. That means in the sum, in the substance, the full treasure of everything that he has and everything that he is, it takes place Immediately upon the conclusion of the great tribulation, the beginning of the second coming, Jesus returns to the Mount of Olives. He creates an earthquake. The great valley of decision is formed. And this is the beginning of what the Bible makes reference to of the millennial reign. He judges all who are alive at the time of his coming. And it would appear that this judgment, like I said, is instantaneous. Somehow his very presence puts everything into perspective. When Jesus appears on the earth, the opportunities for faith are gone. You'll remember the parable of the virgins, which we already looked at. When the bridegroom comes, the door of opportunity is shut in verse 10 of chapter 25. When the Lord appears in glory with the saints and the angels, it would appear that the opportunity is passed. And when he appears with this entourage, of spirit beings, angels, and glorified human beings. This is when the judgment takes place. It says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we get an idea of who these people are. These are the people who didn't obey God. These are the people who did not obey the gospel. And what does obedience to the gospel mean? It means hearing, understanding, and believing the good news that Jesus wants to forgive us. It's interesting to me how so many people want to turn the good news into fake news. The fake news is you're not really a sinner. You don't need a provision for your sin. You're going to be fine apart from God, apart from Christ, apart from the gospel, but nothing could be further from the truth. The Lord comes with angels and with saints. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 4, Paul writes, when Christ, who is our life, appears then you will also appear with him in glory. And so I'm going to suggest to you that there's a lot of different judgments that are spoken of in the Bible. This judgment takes place not in heaven, but on the earth. Clearly it says Jesus, the son of man, will sit on his glorious throne. Isaiah 9, 7. 
of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward and even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The prophet Isaiah says, nothing short, nothing less than God's determination, Jesus' holy determination will make this come to pass. Jesus will reign on the earth for a thousand years over a new earth and then over a new earth throughout all eternity. And this is important. The promises of God must be fulfilled. In Luke chapter 1 verse 31 and 33, the angel speaking to Mary said, Behold, you'll conceive in your womb. And bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. This isn't a heavenly throne. David doesn't have a heavenly throne. He has an earthly throne. And in verse 33 it says, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Will there be a literal thousand year reign of Jesus in Jerusalem? And I believe that the answer must be yes. I believe that there are three compelling reasons to believe. Not in a figurative or a metaphorical, but a literal, a real reigning of Jesus on the earth. Number one, the promises in the Old Testament seem to suggest it. Number two, a literal earthly kingdom seems to confirm Jesus' teachings in the gospel. And number three, a literal earthly kingdom is the only, and I repeat, only consistent interpretation of the messianic prophecies in order for them to come to pass. And so then we ask the question, who will be judged? Look what it says, all the nations, ethnoi, will be gathered before him. And he will separate them one from another. It would appear that at the time of Jesus' coming, in this wounded world that has been judged for its sin, the nations will be gathered before him. The Greek word for nations, by the way, is ethnoi. It is the plural neuter. It means people groups. We get the word ethnic from it, or ethnicity. Nations are usually divided into people groups or language groups. But I'm going to suggest to you that, that no matter who you are or what nation you belong to, at that particular moment, there seems to be an instantaneous judgment. I'm going to suggest to you that whatever the text is saying, I don't think it means that there's... Egypt, and there's Jordan, and there's the United States, and there's this country, and that country. I think that there's an immediate judgment that takes place in the reality that Jesus has come, and all of the people groups are going to realize, uh-oh. Now, no matter who you are or what nation you hail from, I suspect that Jesus will judge the nations collectively but then he seems to judge each person individually. I think that that's what the them in the text means because the word ethnoi almost 
always means the nations of the Gentiles. And in this passage, Jesus actually speaks of three groups. Sheep, goats, and brethren. Look at verse 40 and verse 45 when he says, My brethren, and the least of these, my brethren. I'm going to suggest to you that I think that he's speaking of Jewish people. The Jewish people who are saved during the time of the tribulation, who come into a right relationship with God, who experience unbelievable persecution, hatred, and animosity. Whoever these people are collectively, some will be allowed to enter into the millennial kingdom and some will not. The goats represent the unrighteous or the unbeliever. They will not be allowed to enter into the millennial kingdom. They will receive an immediate, instantaneous sentence, immediate destruction. Look at verse 46. And these will go into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so, who are these brethren? Again, I'm going to suggest these are believing Jews alive when Jesus returns in glory. These are the the Jews who accepted the Lord during this terrible time of judgment. They've survived the wicked persecutions, the evil attempts to wipe them out by the forces of the Antichrist and, and the false prophet. And so again... There's the judgment between verse 32 at the end of verse 32 all the way to verse 36. So the results are in. I want to again remind you there are several judgments listed in the Bible. In the past, there was a judgment in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 19, that's repeated in Romans 5.12 and 1 Corinthians 15.22. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned, it brought about a judgment on the earth. There was a, the judgment of the flood in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 7. There's the judgment of Calvary's cross in Matthew chapter 27, verses 33 through 27. So in just a very few chapters ahead, we're going to see more about that judgment. In verse 33, it says, And when they had come to the place called Golgotha, that is to the place of a skull, when they came to Calvary, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink. It says, then they crucified him and they divided his garments and they cast lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. And what is that which was spoken by the prophet? It wasn't just simply the circumstances, the historical circumstances of that event, but what was spoken of by the prophet collectively, that there would be a judgment for sin. We look at the Old Testament and we see Israel under constant judgment by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, and then by the Romans. In the present, we note 
judgments on the church that's spoken of in Revelation chapter 2 and and chapter 3 where the churches are evaluated and judged. And then we see judgments that take place upon individual believers when God steps into our lives. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 and 13, the Bible talks about that you as a believer are under constant discipline, not punishment, Discipline to correct us and then to direct us. Paul speaks of believers evaluating and judging themselves in order to avoid judgment in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31. Paul begs the Corinthian believers, please, please evaluate your own life. Make the changes that are necessary So God won't have to. We laugh, but think about how wonderful that is. That the Lord gives us opportunity after opportunity. The Bible speaks of future judgments at the Bema or the judgment seat of Christ. And this is the place where the believer receives his or her rewards in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 9 through 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Romans 14, 10, and Revelation 22, 12. So clearly the great tribulation is a judgment upon the earth in chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. God judges man's corrupt religious system and economic system and political system and military system and then ultimately man himself. God judges the Antichrist and the false prophet in Revelation 19.20. There will be judgments leveled against Satan who will serve in the bottomless pit for a thousand years in Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 3. And then in a lake of fire Forever, it says in Revelation chapter 20.10. This lake having been prepared for him in his rebellion. And why? Why? Why is there a lake of fire prepared for him and his angels? It's because he's an eternal being. Satan can't be destroyed. Demons can't be destroyed. When God created angels, he created them to last forever. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that you were made a little bit lower than the angels. You were created. You were created by God to last forever somewhere. The people who believe and survive the devastations of the tribulation will enter the millennial kingdom with a physical body. They're going to prepare. They're going to marry. They're going to produce offspring. The saints who return with Jesus will have celestial bodies, glorified bodies. Those who embrace amillennialism reject the notion that Christ will reign on a literal earth with, with a literal kingdom for a thousand years. They consider the millennial kingdom to be spiritual. They consider it to be symbolic. They consider it to be a metaphor for Christ ruling in the hearts of humans throughout eternity. But I don't think that it really captures what the Bible is saying. And then we see the reward of the righteous in verses 34 through 40. Look what it says, then the king in verse 34 of chapter 25. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, come. Come. 
you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king, the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Those separated on his right hand are the sheep. Jesus calls them blessed of my father. He says, inherit the kingdom that's been prepared for you since the foundation of the world. Children receive inheritance. It is the children who receive the inheritance. And so... I I need you to understand something. The kingdom of heaven, the place where God rules and reigns, isn't an afterthought. It isn't an emergency measure. It isn't his second choice. This is something that God has planned forever. So that when Jesus says in John chapter 14, I go and I'm going to prepare a place for you to receive you to myself. The Christ follower's inheritance, listen carefully, isn't based on good deeds. It isn't based on meritorious rewards. Our reward is based on relationship with God, fellowship with God, and with the king. We receive what our king has determined by his sacrifice for sin. In ancient times, sheep and goats were often herded together. Most of you know that sheep are Gentile. Gentile. Is that a Freudian slip or what? Sheep are gentle and docile and not very smart. They're easily led. And they're easily misled. I don't know how to say this. Sheep aren't very bright. And goats are nearly impossible to lead. My friend John Corson writes, quote, They would rather butt heads and eat trash than follow anyone. He writes, Goats do what they want. Goats eat what they want. Goats butt whom they want. Can you figure out who are the sheep? Can you figure out who are the goats? We might read verses 35 through 40 and make the mistake of thinking that the sheep are rewarded for doing good deeds to the brethren. And again, I'm going to suggest to you that I think the context is Jewish believers in the tribulation period, but there's a broader application for all of us. Salvation isn't based on good deeds, but saving faith, 
and serving faith leads to sacrificial faith. In other words, saving faith and serving faith is manifested and evidenced in sacrificial service. We help the poor. We help the needy. We help the prisoner. We help the persecuted. Not in order to obtain saving faith or serving faith or sacrificial faith, but these are the manifestations of the believer's relationship and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a single person, not one single person has ever been saved by good deeds or noble actions. We can't earn salvation. We don't deserve salvation. We're saved by grace through faith, it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not yourself. It is the gift of God, not the reward of God. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, unquote. So how are we rescued from the judgment? We place our faith, we place our confidence in Jesus the Lord, in the sacrifice of Jesus. How are we rescued from judgment? When we place that confidence in Jesus, you can't go to heaven because your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. Because all it takes is one bad deed. To disqualify you from heaven. Remember in the statement that Jesus makes. Look at the sheep in the illustration. The sheep are surprised. To hear the words of Jesus. They're surprised at their reward. They don't remember seeing Jesus. They don't remember ministering to his needs. And again I suspect these are tribulation saints. Who are ministered to These are believing Jews during the tribulation period. But again, I suggest that they it could incorporate all believers. But I suspect these are the people who shelter the Jews, who shelter them during this time of unrelenting persecution of the future attempt of global genocide directed at the Jewish believers like the people who who sheltered Jews during the Holocaust, who, who provided care and concern. And the Lord lists six areas of need. Number one, hunger. Number two, thirst. Number three, being a stranger. Number four, naked. Number five, sick. sick. And number six, prison. He identifies these areas and says, basically, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because Jesus identifies with you. With everyone who comes to him. This is why he says to Paul in the book of Acts when he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus. Whom you persecute. Jesus takes it personally. What happens to you. 
happens to him. These people are helped not to receive salvation. They're helped by people who they help them because they are saved. And so you see the rebuke of the self-righteous at the end of the story in verses 41 all the way to the end when it says, then he will say to those who are on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed. The individual's designated goats, Warren Wiersbe writes, were judged because they didn't trust Jesus and because they didn't evidence that faith. By caring for his brethren. Warren Wiersbe writes, they apparently received the mark of the beast and took care of themselves. And they took care of their own. But they had no time for the Jewish remnant that suffered on the earth. There are sins of omission as well as sins of commission. James 4.17. Not doing good is the moral equivalent of doing evil. And again in verse 41, then he will say to those who are on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Spurgeon repeatedly told his ministry students when preaching on this particular text, I've said this before, He said, when you speak of heaven, your face should shine as the sun. And when you speak of hell, your regular face will do. (laughs) In order to talk about this, I have to make reference to something that Jesus has already said in verse 34. Look back. Then the king will say to those on the right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. In verse 34, Jesus speaks of the sheep inheriting the kingdom, prepared for saved individuals. Hell was never prepared for the unsaved. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. In Revelation 20, verse 10, it says, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. We're repeatedly told that hell is a place of unquenchable fire, Matthew 3.12, Matthew 13.41, Mark 9.43. Billy Graham was asked if he really believed that it was a literal hell. And Billy Graham said, I'm not sure. He said, whatever it is, it's worse. It's a metaphor. In other words, it isn't describing something less painful and less horrible. Whatever it is, this is bad. It's described as a place of regret, Luke 16, 19. A place of thirst, Luke 16, 24. Misery, pain, anguish, frustration, anger. Remember, this is the place where people are stripped, Matthew 25, 28. Separated, Matthew 25, 30. Revelation 2, 11. Revelation 20, verse 6. And then again in verse 15. This is a place, wherever this place is and whatever it is, it is a place where judgment is received 
undiluted, and it is a place created to last. Look what it says at the end of verse 46, forever. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Even though the text says everlasting punishment and eternal life, the word everlasting and eternal are exactly the same word. You can't make eternal punishment go away without having everlasting reward go away. The reward isn't temporal or probationary. It's eternal. There are people who embrace the scripture's teaching about heaven, but they're reluctant to believe what it says about hell. Robert Ingersoll, a famous lawyer and atheist in the latter part of the 19th century, delivered this blistering lecture on the unbelievability of hell, and he called it the scarecrow of religion. He told his audience how unscientific it was, how all intelligent people have decided there is no such place, and a drunk in the audience came up to him afterwards and said, Bob, I like your lecture. I loved your sermon. I loved what you said about hell. But Bob, I want you to be sure about it because I'm depending upon you. Are you seriously going to stake your eternity on someone else's unbelief? Who has more credibility? Jesus? Or the person who refuses to believe Jesus. Many people just simply can't bring themselves to believe in hell. They're often heard saying, I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. No one speaks more about hell in the Bible than Jesus. And Jesus speaks more about hell than heaven. Jesus speaks repeatedly about the unbeliever's judgment. Jesus speaks about sin, and he speaks about a sin that can never, ever, ever be forgiven. It's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It seems to be the kind of sin that resists with all of their might and every molecule in their body the declaration of the, of the statement that the Holy Spirit comes because, remember, he's coming to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. Apparently, whatever this unforgivable sin is, it includes the idea that the Holy Spirit comes and has a message. And the message is, you can be saved. Your heart can be cleansed. You can be reconciled to God. Jesus describes this place of judgment as torment, regret, darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. No picture of hell is more terrifying than the one offered by Jesus. Jesus wept when he warned the people of the judgment and punishment that was about to come on Jerusalem. The reason why he weeps is because he's motivated by compassion and love. Sinful moms and dads are capable of fierce passion and undeniable concern for their own children. And the Bible says that the father and the son don't wish that any should perish, 
But all should come to repentance in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. God never prepared hell for people, Wearsby writes. There's no evidence from Scripture that God predestines people to go to hell. If sinners listen to Satan and follow his way, they will end up where he ends up. There are two eternal destinies. Everlasting punishment for those who reject Christ and eternal life for those who trust him. And so Jesus issues maybe, maybe the most sober warning in all of Scripture. I don't know if you've been following the raging fires that are out of control in California. The death toll just went up five more yesterday. What could be more loving than to make every effort to warn people who are in harm's way to get out of harm's way? If the fire department knocks on your door and says, you need to leave and you need to leave now, and you go, I'm not leaving, do you think the fireman goes, okay, see ya? Or do you think they would go, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you? Do I have to show you the charred remains of your neighbors? What can I do? What can I do to convince you? Chuck Colson wrote, the doctrine of hell isn't some dusty theological holdover from the unenlightened Middle Ages. It has significant social consequences. Without ultimate justice, people's sense of moral obligation dissolves. Social bonds are broken. People who have no fear of God soon have no fear of man and no respect for human laws and authority, unquote. You see, a person can't really deny the authority of God without denying all authority. C.S. Lewis wrote, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Not Italian people and those who wish they were. He might have said Irish and those who wish they were. C.S. Lewis says, in the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it will be opened. Unquote. Jesus said, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. So what have we learned in our study of the last days according to the king? If you missed it, Jesus is coming back. If you're pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pan-trib, pre-mill, mill partial preterist, no matter what your eschatological outlook is, he's going to come back. If you are an unbeliever, a skeptic, a make-believer, he's still coming back. If you're an atheist, agnostic, skeptic, cynic, heretic, free thinker, mischief maker, backslider, infidel, pagan, heathen, he's still going to come back. And if you have some view of prophecy or no view at all, he's coming back. And he will judge you. And your judgment will take place. On Calvary's cross. Or Christ's throne. 
Your judgment has already been rendered. The pronouncement has already been made if you've accepted Christ as your Savior. But if you haven't, then make no mistake about it. Every single thing, without exception, will be given an account. I think that there's three immediate applications I want to give to you before we close. One is political. God's goal for human government is to promote righteousness and prevent wickedness. I should tell you this. I wasn't going to tell you, but now I'm going to tell you. This last week, I was approached to run for Congress. And I said, you know, there's no way I can win. Because the moment somebody asks me, what is the purpose of government, I'm going to say to them, it's to promote righteousness and it's to punish wickedness. The first and foremost role of government is to promote that which is righteous and to restrict that which is wicked. And the second goal of government is to protect its citizens. He said, you're right, you're unelectable. But one is practical. We're to minister to the poor and to the needy. We give to the cause of Christ. Jesus, Jesus cares about those who are experiencing persecution and prosecution for his name's sake. I want you just for a moment when you have time today to look around you and tell me what you see. Is there someone who could use some help with some food or clothing or a job? Do you know someone who needs a visit in prison? Do you visit someone in the hospital or hospice? And another is personal. It's the application I hope everyone here falls into the category of being called sheep or brethren. But as I was praying and preparing this study, I couldn't help but think there's a little bit of the billy goat in me and in you. We may talk trash instead of eating it. We may butt heads instead of joining hands. But we may be like sheep traveling together, hand in hand, following the shepherd. No wonder the scripture says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what will it be? Talk trash? Eat trash? Go your own way? Or travel together, hand in hand, following the shepherd. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I do pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. Lord, there are people who need help right now. There, need, there are people who need help right now. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be blind, neglectful of the very apparent needs. Lord, we thank you that 
you are a God who makes a, a wonderful provision. And Lord, I do pray right at this very moment for our church. Lord, I thank you in advance for the provision that you're going to make. Lord, it's so hard to talk about need. It's so hard to talk about difficulty. It's so difficult to confess that, that you need something. And so, Lord, I pray that you would, by your grace and your mercy, reveal these needs. Lord, I pray for a provision for each and every person who's come to our service this morning. I pray that there would be a supernatural revelation that would somehow be given, that, Lord, we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. And so that, Lord, we could see what's right in front of us instead of ignoring it or neglecting it or refusing it. Lord, help us to be sensitive and submissive to your Holy Spirit. Help us to love you and serve you and walk with you. Lord, in mercy and compassion, you've given us a way out and a way in. Lord, I pray that we would take it. I pray for the person whose heart is empty and hard. Lord, I pray that you would penetrate it. Lord, I, I pray that they would see the flames and that they would smell the smoke and they would realize that they're in trouble and that they would turn from the sin. They would turn to the Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.